Yoga in Action proudly presents The Lost Ways of Knowing with Circle Yoga Shala's Matthew Kreps. So in the last episode, we talked about the Brahmanas as a shunned body of literature that still involved the Vedic, original Vedic revelation, but with the a beginning of it sort of being modified in an obvious way. We talked about the Brahmanas being part of the late Vedic period and positioned that just before the emergence of the Upanishad. The Upanishad are one of the great bodies of spiritual literature in all of time. They emerge in in two periods, or scholars usually group them together in the same way that the Vedas are talked about early and late, or the early Vedic period and the late Vedic period. There are early Upanishads and there are late Upanishads. And so the early Upanishads are said to be composed somewhere between 500 and 400 BCE. You can see how contemporary this is with the Brahmanas. Some of these early Upanishads of note, the Brihad Aranyaka, the Chandogya, the Kaushitaki. At this time in history, we're close to the Buddha. It's just a little bit before that time to kind of give you an idea of, of when this early period is. Siddhartha lived between 483 and 410 sometime. When we get to the later Upanishads, we're at 400 BCE to 1200 CE. You see quite a lot of time passing there, an incredibly prolific period in the emergence of this body of literature. Some of the later Upanishads are the Kata Upanishad, the Sveshvatara, the Mundaka. Wendy Doniger comments on this basic place that we are right now, just as the Brahmanas are, among other things, footnotes to the Vedas, so the Upanishad began as a sort of cliff note to the Brahmanas, that is, meditation on the meaning of the Vedic ritual and myths. So, as the Brahmanas summed up in a certain sense and ritualized and gave the details of the earlier Vedic revelation, the Upanishad in some way is doing the same thing. Here's something from the scholar Edwin Bryant to help us focus our inquiry. The Upanishads reveal a clear shift in focus away from the conventional outer sacrificial rite, which is relegated to an inferior type of religiosity, replacing it with an interest in philosophical and mystical discourse, particularly the quest for the ultimate underlying reality underpinning the external world, Brahman, which is now localized also in living beings as Atman. So a shift away from the conventional sacrificial rite. We saw some of that last time, when we talked about the myth of Prajapati and his the idea that through his own toil and not an external fire, 
he began to produce heat, which caused the transformation, ultimately leading to the production of gold. But the Upanishad really mark a time when that idea that we're moving away from the way sacrifice has been done is really more clear, really distinct in a certain way. Well, the Upanishads happen during a time in history that has been called by several scholars, namely Carl Jaspers in his work, The Origin and Goal of History. This time is called the the Axial Age. I think it's Jaspers that, that terms it that. And it is a time of radical cultural change and philosophical change. What's interesting about that is that Jaspers claims that this this particular change, it has a particular flavor that we'll talk about that he would say the Upanishads also represent. It's a, a time when that happens in many cultures that don't have a lot of contact with one another. Some contact probably in some way. But he, he speaks of it almost like as it's a, an evolution in the collective consciousness of humanity, if you'll allow me to use that term. Here's a quote from Wikipedia that kind of sums up this vast amount of cultural material that begins to be focused philosophically in a new way. Confucius and Lao Tse were living in China. All the schools of Chinese philosophy came into being, including those of Mo Ti, Chuang Tse, and Lie Tzu, and a host of others. India produced the Upanishads and the Buddha, and like China, ran the whole gamut of philosophical possibilities down to materialism, skepticism, and nihilism. In Iran, Zarathustra taught a challenging view of the world as a struggle between good and evil. In Palestine, the prophets made their appearance from Elijah by way of Isaiah and Jeremiah to Deutero-Isaiah. At the same time, Greece witnessed the appearance of Homer, of the philosophers Parmenides, Heraclitus, and Plato, of the tragedians, the Thucydides, and Archimenides. Everything implied by these names developed during these few centuries almost simultaneously in China, India, and the West. So some people obviously are going to dispute this in some way, but I have seen other offshoots of the theory. Namely, there's a woman named Karen Armstrong who wrote a book called The Great Transformation that's about the Axial Age in which I first really started learning about the Vedic sacrifice and this evolution of our consciousness trying to retain something of this original thing, but then having it morph. And what we're going to talk about today, having it go inside finally you know, and sort of once and for all for a vast majority of people. Armstrong speculates that the reason that people moved away from conventional sacrifice, and and obviously these are examples that I just gave from Jaspers, where that happens like all over the place. In the Hebrew prophets in particular, you start hearing no more burnt offerings, no more blood-smeared altars. That's not the kind of thing that the God of Abraham wants. So this movement away from sacrifice, Armstrong speculates that it happened as a result of us being so close to violence. And 
beginning to understand, even if some, even if in only some intuitive way, what we have to do to our own consciousness to to undergo or to witness and interpret positively these these acts of violence. And I think that's an interesting thing to consider, given what we said about the Veda, this sort of original vision of the Veda that all of our existence is sacrificial because all of it involves eating. So now we're starting to try to deal with the consequences of that in ways that in the Upanishad become uh, mystical and start looking a lot like what we call yoga. The axial age, if we were going to kind of sum it up in a kind of general way that's acceptable, the idea that's so so near and dear to all of our hearts like this idea, look within in order to discover the answer to certain problems, existential problems, or even salvation, that we should look within. This is said to be an axial age idea. Now, what is the central teaching of the Upanishads? I think there is a diverse teaching across all the Upanishads, and there are many. Remember how long that that lasted somewhere between 400 BCE and 1200, right, CE or AD, as they used to say. But the a tradition has developed and is clearly discernible in all of that material that generally has been called Vedanta. Vedanta means, you can see the word Veda in there, V-E-D-A-N-T-A, and Anta means end. And so, in a way, the Upanishad were called the final commentary on the Veda, something that is the end of it, not only the end of that period that includes the Brahmanas, but also a philosophical critique of the Veda and the Brahmana that sort of came to an ultimate resolution in some people's minds. So what, what's, what's Vedanta about? So let me quote Wendy Doniger here in an impossibly long sentence that I'm going to probably chop up a little before I get to the end of it. Quote, The person is the individual soul, the Atman, or the self. And this is identical with Brahman, the world soul. Let me stop with that fragment right there. There's an identity of individual soul with world soul. Sometimes Brahman is translated as Atman also, but with a a capital A, whereas the individual human soul is translated with a small a, okay, in order to distinguish those two. Now back to to the sentence. Just as salt becomes identical with water into which it is dissolved, so the individual soul becomes identical with the world soul upon realization. So basically, this is the central teaching of the Upanishad. It's a doctrine sometimes called panentheism. What does that mean? Panentheism could be summed up as the idea that the world is made of God. It's a little bit different than pantheism, which sort of says that everything is divine, right, in a certain way. But even, but in some forms of pantheism, there there is often referenced 
a difference between something that is impermanent and something that is more permanent. Even that subtle thing sometimes is there. In panentheism, the world is actually made out of God. And we've already said that the individual soul is identical, right, with Brahma. And so when the two, when the manifest and the unmanifest are absolutely connected, when there is no separation between the two, it is possible to say something like the world is made of God or everything in experience is made of God. And already you're beginning to see mystical union as central in these ideas. So this idea that everything is made of the divine has a famous, uh, is made in a very famous statement, tat tvam asi, tat tvam asi, the Chandogya Upanishad. It means you are that or thou art that. We're going to come across this again. This is the orientation, this mystical union, this sometimes powerful monism, oneness, is called Vedanta. It means the end of the Veda, as we said. The end is considered to be Gnostic in a certain way. That, that means that Vedanta, the doctrine of Vedanta, relies heavily on the idea of realization, seeing it right, understanding very clearly exactly this identity uh, between the individual soul and the world soul and that there can be nothing separate from that. That's the realization. The, The gloss in Vedanta is less on doing something like, for instance, doing lots of pranayama or doing work or doing something like this. It's so much more on realizing what is happening. The classic metaphor is seeing that the the snake in the corner of the room is actually a rope when you turn the light on is the great image that comes as a, that's often given right in in studies of Vedanta. Just like that, we see, and once we see, we can't unsee. Then we know who we are. We are identical with the source at the level of soul then we know that we are no longer liable for the cycle of rebirth because we've realized, and that means we'll go home. And like salt into water, we'll be dissolved into the source. Well, there is a group of sayings that come from several of the Upanishads, from the the Aitareya, the Mandukya, the Chandogya, and here's a hard one. Brihad Aranyaka. Sanskrit speaker, sorry, but I'm trying. In each of these various Upanishads, there is a statement of this theological or Gnostic realization that's at the center of the teaching of Vedanta. Prajnanam Brahma. Insight is Brahman or Brahman is insight. And so just look at the two equations there. Insight is Brahman. Brahman is insight. This means realizing is the same as the experience of the source, the direct, the experience of the direct 
never-connectedness. Never-not-connectedness, sorry. Always-already-connectedness. That insight is the full thing. Ayam Atma Brahma. The self, the Atman, is Brahman. We mentioned this one already. Tattvam Asi, thou art that, from the Chandogya. And finally, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Well, throughout the series so far, we've been tracing the Vedic triad, the original material in the Vedic revelation, up through different periods in history that are significant for the practice of modern yoga. The Vedic triad is still here in the Upanishad, and, and I think this is the, the first time, one of the first times that you really see a transformation of these three materials into something that is revolutionary and produces a whole lot of revision and future insight and uh, investigation in the realm of yoga, in the realm of awakening, right, of being freed from ignorance. And so remember that the Vedic triad is, is the human level, and that's the soma, that's the food for the fire. Then there's the sacrificial fire, agni, and then there's the divine, which was called vayu, and that, vi, that word vayu means wind. And so we see there the fluid, the fire, and the wind that is at the divine level, at the human level, and as far down as you could go and as far up as you can go. This is the triple dynamic. This is present in the Upanishads and transformed, and it becomes rasa, tapas, and prana. So whereas we have soma in the original, we now have rasa. Let's go through these one at a time. Rasa is related to the to the word resin in English. It's the Indo-European root or the theoretical Indo-European root for that word resin. And so it means essence, the essence of a thing, but notice the, the body of it. It's a sap. It's a resin. And so it means juice. So the soma has become the juice, the liquid, the oblation. But now that rasa, that's inside us. We're going to see that again in Ayurveda. Now we have tapas, this internal heat that is ardor or or subtle work, that's become Agni. And then the wind from heaven in the Vedic sacrifice has now been, quote-unquote, stepped down a couple of levels, and it has become prana. And that's going to be immensely important for theories about pranayama and medical things that happen later in Ayurveda. So to to give it weight again, this is not the the first time inclinations toward internalizing the sacrifices happen, but this is probably the first time where we see it as an entirely internal ordeal in a certain way. We really see that the human itself is now clearly manifesting all the parts of the macro, micro, sacrificial template, and the work is something that I myself might do.
So here the human body is the rasa in general, the liquid uh, that is involved in the sacrifice. And, and that means that the human body is imaged as the oblation. Now, if y'all don't know what an oblation is, the oblation is, the, is a liquid, the liquid that's poured into the fire. Robert Colasso makes a lot out of this book, or out of this idea in his book, Ardor, which is on the bibliography that goes somewhere that my companions know. You'll be able to have access to it. <laughs> Ardor makes a lot out of the pouring of the oblation into the fire as the beginning of the sacrifice because it's the beginning of stepping into a context where something is really lost forever because the it's a liquid that's poured into the sacrifice. You can't take it back out. Now, if it were a stone or if it were a log, you'd have time to pull it out in a way. And so you're with those kinds of objects, you're kind of still in a place where no real loss or no immediate loss takes place. But when it's liquid, you could say it's on, baby. Now something can be lost forever. That which appeared is going to be made, is going to disappear and be made invisible. And if it's in the sacrificial context, it's going to be reabsorbed at a higher level. So that liquid is the human body now. So that's beautiful because we can see when we see bodies practicing, when we see bodies at all, this vivifying liquid without which the sacrifice can't happen. The sacrificial fire, we said, is now tapas, okay? And this idea that we mentioned in the last episode about religious austerity or yogic austerity as the way to increase tapas or build internalized heat really comes to fruition in the Upanishad. The the people who wrote the Upanishad or the, the kinds of folks who who engaged in these religious austerities for the purposes of escaping birth and death were referred to as the Aranyakas. I think I'm right. That means forest dweller. And so we see ascetics here. We see people who have left the major part of society, basically Vedic sacrificial society, and they're in the fringe. They're living, quote unquote, in the forest. A lot of meditation, uh, eating very little, right? And so on. And so you're starting to see the emergence of a particular flavor of aspirant when it comes to the idea of how to deal with the existential problems in human life or the predicament that we're in. God, freedom, love, and death. Lastly, the wind, Vayu, which was the sort of symbolic representation of the heaven or the higher, is now conceived as this breath that moves in and out my body and we're going to start to see references of how the breath is going to be worked with specifically to fan the flames of tapas in order to keep the fire happening. So you start to see stuff like pranayama emerging, and it's very clear, right, in the Upanishads. So the internalization of the Vedic sacrifice now, we finally get it localized entirely in the area 
of a human, the inside, and so on and so forth. We should spend more time on this idea of the body as the oblation or the sacred liquid, the sap or resin of existence that's poured into the fire, that the human body is that. That's, in a way, a new status for the body. And this idea that throughout the history that we're doing, the body is going to be this continual seed of contemplation that's either going to be denigrated more or it's going to be exalted more is something that will go forward with us all the way through Tantra leading up to Hatha and leading up to the Asana culture, you know, that we see today. The body begins to take on different valences of value or it becomes, it has greater status as time progresses. This is very important for things like research and development into medical areas or the area of healing and medicine. Uh, you have to think that the body has something very profound to tell you in order to study it for the purposes of trying to help with sickness and so on and so forth. That's Ayurveda. This idea that the body gains a new status or this the, that the body gains a new status also shows in Hatha and Tantra in the sense of those disciplines are going to conceive of the body as, as actually being able to be transformed into something divine itself, a siddha, a master, right, free from birth and death. The alchemist feels the same way. So the body now being exalted in a certain sense, or at least we're being affectionate and fascinated with it and its internal workings, that's really going to go forward with this and is a really important thing to point out here. David Gordon White says it this way, once the bodily microcosm was transformed into the seat of the sacrifice, interest in the internal workings of the body became greatly expanded. This expansion leads to research and development into two areas. We're going to call them the mystical and the medical. I'm actually borrowing those from David Gordon White. Let's do the mystical first. This leads to yoga practice as we know it now. David Gordon White says, In the later Upanishads, there are vague references to yogic techniques by which to generate transformative inner heat in tandem with meditative, nociological, Gnostic, quote, that's me inserting that, realization of the identity of the individual soul with the universal soul. And so you start seeing references about technique that is designed to produce or invite a kind of absorption. We mentioned in the last episode that, that this is a leftover of the rapture that Soma created a need for. Humans realize that, that mystical union in some sense is something that is something we need. We need to stay in relation with something like that in order to be who we are, or if you want to say become who we are. Notice here that it's two things, another one-two punch. It's the heat of tapas, a burning, right, that is a spiritual ardor combined with knowledge. And that's how we get to liberation, which is called moksha. And that means freedom. Well, this heat and knowledge are um, conceived of as burning up accumulated karmic baggage from many, many lifetimes of ignorant action. 
karma falam, ignorant action. And the reason that action is ignorant is because it grows out of a sense of separateness. Or you could say we're suffering a case of, of mistaken identity. We believe that we are something that could come and go. We believe that we are something impermanent in a sense. And we act accordingly. We develop desires and attachments for things to to really deal with the this sense of emptiness that knowledge of impermanence supposedly gives us. But the Upanishad is going to say, no, you're seeing it wrong, remember? And now when you see it correctly, you'll see that, that that snake you were afraid of was actually a rope. And that realization itself will free you. So this is heat and knowledge, right? Burning up accumulated karma. In this new context, we could say more about rasa also. It's interesting that in the Maitri Upanishad, the word rasa is used to designate the highest eminent of the highest guna, the strand known as sattva, essence or purity. That comes from that information comes from David Gordon White too. Let me unpack that for you. What is this eminent of the highest guna? The most subtle aspect, aspects of the reality that is available in some sense to experience comes from something called the sattva gun, which is essence and purity. So when, when the manifestation first emerged out of the nothingness that it came from, the first things, quote-unquote, to emerge were very, very, very subtle, and one of the most subtle of those is sattva. And so that's way up the chain of creation before us. Look that in the Upanishad, rasa, this oblation, which is the body, is seen as an eminent, something that comes directly from the sattva gun, something that comes directly from essence or purity. And it's when you combine that idea that there is this subtle eminent that comes from a very subtle source with the idea of the yoga that's emerging, you get the idea of a vital fluid being produced right from a spiritual discipline. This points forward, right, into Hatha Yoga. This points forward into Ayurveda and right living because the most subtle essences that the human produces through the digestion process, those would be reproductive tissue. And then even beyond that, ojas, which is another homologue of of soma in a certain way. This is the essence that, that we produce. And if we digest well and we live well and we experience mystical union and right relations and right action and right speech and so on, then we make, we, we more efficiently make this subtle liquid. So this, this idea that whatever rasa is, that this body is not something foul or, or just totally impermanent and worthless, but that it's actually the subtle eminent of like the highest guna, the sattva guna, 
right, is an amazing evolution in, in value. And that directly affects the way we practice going forward into the future, being sympathetic in a way to the body. So th- there's how some research and development went into mystical concerns. What about the body as oblation producing medical R&D, specifically in Ayurveda? So in Ayurveda, the one of the expressions of the Vedic triad is the dosha, tridosha, kapha, pitta, and vada, the earth and water data point, the water and fire data point, and the air and space data point. Or here we have fluid, kapha, fire, pitta, and vada, breath. This is the inner human metabolic activity, the flow of the doshas. That theory arose directly out of the body gaining new status in spiritual discourse. Also, Ayurveda appropriates from the Vedic matrix the notion of wind or vayu. That's a Uh, That's also directly related to the Upanishads' idea of prana. Now the wind of heaven is prana, and it becomes my own prana in a sense. And when that wind of heaven gets stepped down several levels and, and takes up a home in the body, it's called vayu. And there are five primary vayus that run the physiology, all motion, all uh, diastolic, systolic, pulsation, in the body, all intake and all output. So Ayurveda is directly affected and comes up with theories about how the body works physiologically because of this new status that the body has gained as oblation in the Upanishad. The practices of Ayurveda begin to serve in the place of the sacrifice because of this connection. The Whereas the sacrifice formerly mediated between heaven and earth, now the, the Ayurvedic activity, the Ayurvedic physician in particular, or the Vaidya, can intervene in the relationship between the microcosm, which is our internal doshic metabolism, and the macrocosm. And that's the external environment and the time and change of the seasons. All of this grows out of this late Vedic matrix in the Upanishad, Ayurveda is said to be kind of developing concurrently with this. And so these ideas are all mixed in together. So we love to leave you with stories. We love to give you direct material from the, in this case, Upanishad, so that you have images that your imagination can work on, so that you can begin to see yourself possibly as the alchemist, the yogini, the sacrificer, the eater, the one being eaten, and so on. This makes it richer for us as we move toward the the modern world. Here's a quotation from the Shvetashvatara Upanishad. When he holds the body steady with the three sections erect, and withdraws the senses into his heart with the mind, 
a wise person will cross over all the frightening rivers of embodied existence by means of, by means of the boat of Brahman. His breathing restrained here within the body and his energy under, under control, he should breathe through one nostril when his breath is depleted. A wise person should control the mind just as one would a wagon yoked to unruly horses and engage in the practice of yoga, when by means of the true nature of the Atman, which is like a lamp, a person perceives the truth of Brahman in this world, he is freed from all bondage because he has known the divine, which is unborn, unchanging, and untainted by all things. So that's a mouthful. There's a lot in here. We have an overt reference to yoga, and that reference to yoga looks like breathing, being restrained, quote, here in the body. It looks like energy, quote, being under control. It looks like tending a fire. It looks like being wise, like someone who is driving a wagon hooked to, quote, unruly horses. This is probably one of the most famous images uh, from the developing yoga tradition of what we're dealing with when we're trying to do yoga practice, when we're trying to understand our and realize our identity with the source of all things, when mysticism has become important, dealing with the body and dealing with the, the mind, the body-mind complex, body-mind-soul complex is just like driving a wagon that's hooked to unruly horses. Those horses become a very important image uh, later on for the senses. So the the senses themselves are as powerful as horses and unruly horses can drag the wagon into oblivion. And so yoga here, even in the beginning, is seen to be a kind of fettering of some kind of crazy-ass habits and energies that move through the human at all times, our senses being that. They're going to get us in trouble if we're not careful. This yoga of keeping the horses in check is happens by means of, quote, the true nature of the Atman. And so the soul begins to be the main thing that the senses are concerned with. They begin to turn toward the self or the Atman, and the self is like a lamp. When that is perceived, the truth of Brahman in this world is known. So there again, we begin to be able to look out and see the world made of God. We're freed from all bondage in this seeing because all bondage results from believing that we have been born, that we will continue to change, and that we will be tainted. What we realize is that we are unborn, that we are unchanging, and untainted by all things. So, we have pranayama. We have what's called pratyahara here, sense withdrawal or practice that centers around the senses. 
We have meditation or dhyana. We have concentration, dharana, and the later we have something called tarka or inquiry and also samadhi. Both of those are mentioned in the Maitri Upanishad as well after the passage that I just read to you. Those of you who have had any contact with the Yoga Sutra immediately are going to see something that looks a little bit like the eight limbs here. Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana. Tarka is in there, and then Samadhi, absorption, right, into the self. So we're clearly seeing the modern world when we begin to see the Upanishads' revelation and the way it's put in, into practice. Now, if we can provide a quick summary to bring this to an end, the Upanishads shift us away from the external sacrifice that ancient sacrifice becomes revitalized and reinterpreted and it is placed in the vicinity of the human, as the human. The identity of the human soul with the divine is taught in the most beautiful of ways. And the idea that once realized, we will be reabsorbed into the source. New discourses on the body as an oblation. Remember, the body as the liquid that's poured into the fire. Those new discourses lead to research and development in both mystical and medical areas. This generates an intense interest in internal physiology, for instance. And also, it generates an intensely deep observation of experience, say, in a meditative context. And then we see explicit mention of the categories and qualities and practices that define much of the future yoga that you and I know. They're clearly expressed here, most clearly expressed here for the first time. So I hope this has been interesting to you. We really appreciate you listening. God bless you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Yoga in Actions, The Lost Ways of Knowing. To engage more, visit Circle Yoga Shala, a school for yoga, creative movement, and self-inquiry in Arkansas's Ozark Mountains at circleyogashala.com. Offerings range from teacher training, an internationally accredited yoga therapy program, to a quarterly publication, a comprehensive and integrated body of literature.